Trials and tribulations, life can get rough. And through the storm, we'll make it. Just put your trust in Him. No matter what you're going through, I know that I'll never leave you. You feel that you can't take no more. You may think you've seen it all. Thank you for checking out the Get Happy with Jay podcast. I'm your host, Jatan Woods. We are well into season two in the second year of this happy movement. Let us know how you're doing in your happiness and wellness journey and how this podcast can be even more help to you. If there's any particular topic or issue you would like for us to address, just reach out. You can message me directly on the website, gethappywithjay.com or on our Facebook page by the same name, of course. In this episode, we were talking about binge eating and our guest Guest expert is Dr. Glenn Livingston. Dr. Livingston is a veteran psychologist who has spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and self-funded research with over 40,000 participants. Most important is that this has been a personal journey also for Dr. Livingston, who has overcome obesity and food prison to reach a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. So let's get into it. And welcome to Dr. Livingston. How are you today? I'm fine, but if you say Dr. Livingston one more time, I think you should call me Glenn. <laughs> okay, thank you. That's nice and short and sweet. So, yeah. Glenn, can um, we start the conversation with you really truly defining what binge eating is? Because I'm, I'm also um, curious as to how it differs from emotional eating, or are they sort of similar? Well, I, you know, we could talk about the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for binge eating, which involve a certain frequency of um, eating beyond your own best judgment and self-castigation and recovering from the uh, recovering from the after effects of the overindulgence um, associated with a negative self-esteem, blah, 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 blah. We could, mm-hmm. we could talk about all that, but, and we could also talk about what emotional eating really is and how do you know if you're doing it or anything like that. But the bottom line is if people feel like they are not able to follow through on their best laid plans with food, if they're not accomplishing their health and fitness goals, then you know, it's safe to say that it would be worth doing something about it. So the, re- the reason that I'm not as strict about the diagnostic criteria for defining binge eating is because, first of all, I'm not providing treatment. The, the methods that I've come to after years of suffering myself are not necessarily the best practices in my profession. And so I don't offer this as a treatment for any disease, disorder, or condition. I really offer it as education and and coaching. And um, secondly, the whole question about do I meet the diagnostic criteria or not really has to do with, well, should I do anything about this or not? And I think that's a much easier question to answer because, Mm -hmm. you know, if, look, if if you're heavier than you want to be because you're eating more than you want to, then you should do something about it. <laughs> right. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't I don't believe this is a disease. I don't believe that it's a um, I don't believe that it's something that is really beyond your control or that it's a progressive sickness in the way that, you know 
So you don't look at it necessarily as an addiction? Well, it is an addiction, but addiction just means love of. Mm -hmm. Addiction means love of. And Mm -hmm. addiction does not mean that you are uh, really powerless or out of control. There There are a lot of studies that show that addicts are able to modulate their behavior when it becomes important enough to them. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the notion of um, addiction as this mysterious, progressive, chronic disease is really just out of hand. I don't, I don't think that's true. So when would you encourage someone to seek help? Because I think in a lot of people's minds, when you think binge eating, um, you don't think of them just eating like until they're just a little bit beyond full. But I think a lot of people have that mental image that you're just like gorging down 10 cheeseburgers and can't stop or something like that to the extreme. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's better to seek help before you get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, there, is, there is a discreet experience of the binge eater who it's almost like they feel like someone's pointing a gun at their head and forcing them to eat. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, the binging urge is triggered by feeling too full, which is odd because you would think it would be triggered um, by feeling too empty. Mm-hmm. But but it seems like seems like people are prone to binging when they've also previously been prone to dieting, and so they're signaling their body that they're actually in a feast and famine environment. Mm-hmm. And so the moment that food is really available, which is what being full would signal, their, their brain says, well, you better hoard it. And there's this switch that's flipped and they feel like someone's holding a gun to their head and they have to, they have to binge. And is it true that there seems to be <clears throat> some isolation to it? Because a lot of people, when they're doing this, they don't want to, they're not necessarily doing it around someone else that can maybe hold them accountable or say something to, about, to them about it. Like you're getting up in the middle of the night when you're kind of an alone at an alone time? Most people binge alone. Mm-hmm. Some people binge with friends. Most people binge alone. And the process of recovery is an isolating experience also. Um, and then as people gain weight, they are frightened of going to be seen and judged socially. So they, they live a smaller and smaller life. So it, it is a very isolating experience. And so you have overcome this yourself. Was it a lengthy process for you? And what was that like for you personally coming to the realization that um, that you were binge eating? Did you even recognize it at first? Because I think even with me, who's dabbled in in that some, um, I think you can be doing it and not even necessarily aware, like you're not putting a name or a label on what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm not just a psychologist that decided to work with binge eaters. I had a very mm-hmm. serious problem myself, and it, it was a lengthy process for me to figure out. It doesn't have to be a lengthy process to fix it, but I went down the wrong road in many directions. So yeah, wh- when I was a kid, I was 17, and I discovered that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, because I'm, I'm 6'4", and I'm reasonably muscular, I could eat anything I wanted to. I could have six, 7,000 calories a day, mm-hmm. whole pizzas, boxes of munchkins, muffins, lattes, anything that I wanted to. I could just eat and eat and eat. And I didn't think it was a problem. Like Doug Graham says, I think I thought it was a superpower. And it really, other than the fact that it took a lot of time out of my life to do all that working out and then actually a lot of time to eat, it wasn't a serious problem for me until I got to graduate school and I got married and I was commuting and I had patients and I just had all these responsibilities and I couldn't spend two or three hours a day working out. Couldn't do it. So I 
kept eating anyway. Mm-hmm. And I got fatter and fatter. And my triglycerides went through the roof. They were about 1,100 at one point. Doctors oh, wow. told me I was going to die soon. And I, um, I couldn't stop thinking about food. So I'd be sitting with really high-risk patients, like suicidal patients, where you have to be 100% present. Mm-hmm. And I'd be thinking about food. I just, I just couldn't stop thinking about when can I get a chocolate bar, when can I get a whole pizza. And it really bothered me. I'm, I'm from a family of 17 psychologists. Being a psychologist was the first and most important thing in my life. Mm-hmm. And so it bothered me what impact it was having. I mean, I was getting to be very unhealthy, and I really liked exercise and you know, the gym and things. And so it was harder and harder to do all that. I didn't like the way that I looked. I didn't like the way that I felt. I didn't like the way that I was thinking. And I went for all of the traditional avenues of treatment. I went to psychologist after psychologist after psychologist. I went and took medication. I spent years in Overeaters Anonymous. I, I, and all of it helped. All of it helped a little, and then I'd regress and go back worse. Mm-hmm. And finally, I, I never had kids, and I, I had a dual career, so I was doing a lot of consulting for big industry. I knew how to do these big studies. So I decided to fund one of my own. And over the course of about five years, we had 40,000 people take a survey. And what they said on the survey was uh, three things. It looked like people who struggled with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. And that was interesting. And I, I always went to chocolate first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I was in a bad marriage, so it kind of made sense that I was a little lonely and brokenhearted. The people who struggled with crunchy, salty things, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bread and bagels, they tended to be stressed at home. And I figured this would be the answer. I figured now you ask people what they binged on, you would know what their psychological issue was, and you would just work on it. And when you fix the psychological issue, that would be be it. It would be okay. Mm -hmm. And I started with myself. So I said, okay, so if the issue is loneliness and being brokenhearted, then I have to figure out where that comes from. And what it is in my history that led me to that, and you know, what am I going to do about the marriage and all that kind of thing. And so, I went to my mom, who was also a therapist, and mom said, "You know, honey, I'm so sorry, but there is something when you were about one year old." I said, "What?" And she said, "Well, I was really depressed. My my dad had just gone to prison, and he was doing these things, and I didn't know, and I had idolized him, and I was so depressed. And at the same time, your father, my husband, was a captain in the army." And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was so scared. And so I would kind of sit paralyzed looking at the wall a lot of the time. And you'd be coming running to me wanting a hug or some love or some food. And I didn't have it to give to you. So I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup on the floor in in a refrigerator. And I'd say, go get your Bosco, honey. And you'd go running over to the Bosco. And you would suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar sugar coma. Mm. And at that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It does. But if this were the movies, everything would be fixed then. We'd have a big hug and a big cry, and we'd forgive each other, and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again in my life. But it's not the movies, and even though we did have a big enough hug and a big cry, and I, I did forgive myself, I understood a lot more about what went on and how it all started, and mm-hmm. I certainly forgave my mom, and we had a lot of good talks. The chocolate problem actually got worse. Mm. And the reason the chocolate problem got worse was because there was this little voice in my head and the voice said something like, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life, we're going to have to go out and binge and fill it with chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some. And it became a justification for binging whenever I had that emotion. And 
And what I learned from that was that there is a difference between why and how to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I knew from all the work that I've been doing with big food companies that once you started eating these foods, they have a life of their own. They're, they're engineered to find your bliss point without giving you the nutrition that you need to feel satisfied. Mm-hmm. And That and makes sense because it puts you in that cycle of wanting more and more. Mm-hmm. It puts you in the cycle of wanting more and more. And there are billions of dollars spent on packaging to make it look healthy. I remember a major food bar manufacturer that told me that their biggest profitable insight was when they figured out that they... They figured out that they could take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. Mm. The packaging looked vibrant and colorful and healthy. And so I said, so what you're telling me is that you're faking everyone out to make them think there's nutrition in there when it really isn't. And the guy kind of nodded his head and didn't want to be named. <laughs> um, but that's, that's how it goes. That's how it goes in the food industry. And then there's billions of dollars in advertising spent to get us to think we can't live without it. Mm-hmm. There's something like 7,000 messages beamed at us through the internet and airwaves every year about food, and I think maybe a half a dozen of them are about eating more fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> think about how we're being programmed. And then yes. the addiction treatment industry says we can't quit. We can only abstain one day at a time. So it's, it's a perfect storm. It's a real perfect storm. So then how do you begin to be reprogrammed? So, okay, so this, this is what I did. This is the embarrassing part. I had been reading some alternative addiction treatment literature by Jack Trimpe, who wrote a book called Rational Recovery, and he was working largely with alcohol and drugs, which are both black and white addictions that you can give up entirely. Draw a line on the sand and say, I'll never drink again, and you don't have to drink again. But food is something where you take the lion out of the cage and you have to walk it around the block a few times a day. You mm-hmm. can't breath. Yep, you have to eat. <laughs> but I decided I could try to make really clear lines in the sand anyway. And essentially what Trimpey was saying was that, look, you can't love yourself out of an addiction. It's the wrong attitude. Your, your brain is composed of two parts, the lower and the upper, the lizard brain and the human brain. And then I, I got more of this from looking elsewhere, but the lizard brain doesn't know love. It knows eat, mate, or kill. The lizard brain looks at something in the environment. Its decision is not do I love it, but do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Mm-hmm. That's how the lizard brain thinks. There's no aspirations or spirituality or creativity or music or art. It's just eat, mate, or kill. Our human brain can inhibit the lizard brain so that before it acts on the eat, mate, or kill impulse, asks, well, what implications are there for my loved one? What implications are there for my longer-term goals? What, what does this have to do with the kind of person that I want to be in the world? So let's not be so impulsive. Let's kind of step back and think about who am I as a civilized human being and what do I want to accomplish? And he said that in order to overcome drinking, because the seed of the drinking addiction was in the lizard brain, you needed to be willing to dominate it in the same way that an alpha wolf dominates a challenger for leadership. When an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership by another member of the pack, the alpha wolf's attitude is, look, get back in line or I'll kill you. Mm -hmm. He snarls and, and, and at that point, everything just kind of flipped in my head. And I said, well, that's a different paradigm. I've been trying to love myself thin for years. What if that's wrong? What if I have to, what if this is more like capturing and caging a rabid animal than nurturing my inner wounded child back to health? And so I decided I had a pig inside me. I decided I was going to call my lizard brain my inner pig. I decided that I was going to draw bright lines so that I knew what healthy food was and what it wasn't. So for example, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I decided that chocolate itself was going to be pig slop. And when I felt a craving for chocolate, I would say, I don't want that, my pig does. 
and I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Mm. And as embarrassing as that, it's silly, right? <laughs> <laughs> but as crude as that is and as embarrassing as it was, that's what started to give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to remember who I was, what I wanted to accomplish, and to kind of write myself and, and act like a, a human being again. Yeah, to give you just a long enough pause to make a different decision. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't a miracle. You know, I, it's not like I had an instant cure. But slowly but surely, I started to feel my sense of power again. Mm-hmm. I, I'd been feeling hopeless. I really did think I was going to die in my 30s from, uh, you know, from food, from overeating and binging. I really did think that it was hopeless. And I'd been told that I was powerless in some of the 12-step programs. And I, I really was getting more and more depressed, thinking there's just no way to do this. But slowly but surely, I started to get my power back. And then I realized that you could have all types of rules. You could have always rules, like I'll always have six fruits or vegetables every calendar day, or even rules that didn't restrict your food at all. It would be just something that supported mindfulness, like I'll, I'll always put my fork down between bites, or I'll, I'll never eat standing up, or I'll never eat in the car, those kind of things. And you could have conditional rules, like I'll only ever have chocolate at a, at a social event again. And it just became a matter of very carefully defining what role I wanted each trigger food to play in my life, what did I think was reasonable, then listening very carefully for my inner pig to try to talk me out of it. Gee, Glenn, you got more than enough exercise today. This chocolate's not going to make you gain weight. You might as well have some. We can start again tomorrow. Or, um, you know, you really haven't eaten in a long time. Your body's empty enough and you're thin enough, so you might as well eat a whole bunch of garbage. Fill fill her up and we'll diet again tomorrow. All those things that my pig would say, I kept a journal... I figured out where the lies were, and slowly but surely I got better, and then it became a thing of the past. So that's my story. That's how this all happened to me. It was um, really a wonderful, pivotal moment, you discussing the conversation that you had with your mother and that you were able to to pinpoint with her help where this began um, for patients or people in general who don't necessarily have that person that can help them pinpoint what happened. Um, What do you suggest to do to help them get to that point? Because I think even for me in my weight loss journey, um, I had to kind of have an honest, brutally honest conversation with myself. And I had to think, like, how did I get to this point? And it was really hard and, and it took me a while for my like brain to open up and remember certain things because you know how like we f- naturally forget and you repress some things and, and I began to remember some ugly things that happened to me in my childhood that I could clearly pinpoint made me change my um, attitude and perception about my body mm-hmm. and how and where I began and why to like pad my body because that's kind of what you're doing a lot of times when you're packing on the weight you're padding yourself for protection yeah yes for protect exactly and so that was so important for me to be able to look back and um I think having been in therapy for some grief issues and some loss helped at the time so I was more open to think about things in a therapeutic sense, but um, do you encourage people to really um, perhaps get therapy or take that look at their life to figure out why they're doing what they're doing? Do you think that's really important to do to be able to heal? Um, 
think it's important to do to be able to heal psychologically. Mm-hmm. I think that it can lead you to a cure for binge eating, but I think it's the slow way. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I think it's uh, in some ways a more satisfying way because you learn so much about yourself and it leads you to heal a lot of these painful experiences mm-hmm. that would otherwise remain inside of you. But I actually think that, that if you work on the very practical and concrete methods to separate your constructive versus destructive thinking about mm-hmm. food and you learn to ignore the destructive thinking, I think that can be a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And then if you get the bad eating patterns out of your life quicker, what happens is that the feelings are more intense and the results of therapy are stronger. And mm. Okay. I, I definitely get that. See, they, there's a difference between being a fireman and an arson detective. The fireman just wants to get the fire out as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily need to know who started it and where it was started and why it was started. They just want to put the fire out. So I think that we want to put the fire out as quickly as possible, and then we can look at why and how and when and where and what that means to your life after that. And the, the way that you do that, for example, your listeners could all step back and ask themselves, what's, what's the single worst trigger food or behavior that I'm dealing with? And what role would I like that food to play in my life? So for me, it was chocolate. And initially mm-hmm. I said, I could have chocolate on the weekends, but not during the week. I just want to be the kind of person that doesn't have chocolate during the week. So I made a rule. And with that rule in line, I could then learn how the game was played and listen for, listen for my inner pig to try to talk me out of it. Then I could look at the lies that the pig was telling. And I could let it go. I could just ignore them. So I know, I know it sounds simple. And if you've been... A, see, I, I was immersed in this like you were. I was mm-hmm. immersed in looking for the psychological solution forever. And it's really, really hard to believe that something so crude and primitive could make a difference when you do see all these connections. Like it, it's very legitimate that my, my mother did set this up. She really she didn't give me what I needed when I was little. I don't blame her for it, given what she was going through. But she didn't give me what I needed, and I learned to go to chocolate instead. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pain that I sat with in my, in my soul for a lot of years because of that. And I was covering it over with chocolate in a lot of ways. But I didn't have to know that in order to stop the chocolate. If I... If I just understood that there was this voice in my head that was making it okay for me to keep breaking my plans, if I knew how to hear that voice and I knew how to disempower it, mm-hmm. then maybe I'd be walking around with a pain inside me more so than I do now. But I, I could have stopped eating chocolate 20 or 30 years ago if I knew how to do that. I know that, that answer probably surprised you. Maybe it's not what you wanted to hear, but that's, that's my conclusion after Oh, all. no. I'm, I think that's enlightening. I hadn't thought of it in that way. And so oh. I definitely appreciate hearing that. Seriously. Um, okay. On some of the information um, that's been provided, um, you talk about how to think like a thin person. How does a thin person think about food and approach eating? Well, you're making a conscious decision to separate your healthy thoughts from your destructive thoughts. Mm-hmm. So if I say, I'm going to make it a simpler role because I actually evolved to never have chocolate again and... This whole program is diet agnostic. It works for any dietary philosophy you want to follow. You don't have to give up anything. I'm not going to tell you what to eat. People Mm -hmm. make their own rules. Mm -hmm. But I'll make the rule simpler and I'll say, I will never have chocolate again, which is a rule that I do follow. I've been doing it for years. Well, the moment that I lay that rule down, 
I can suddenly identify all of my destructive thinking around food as any thought, feeling, or impulse that suggests that I will have chocolate either now or in the future until the day that I die. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very clear line. And now I know that any thought, feeling, or impulse, blah, 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 that suggests that I won't have chocolate is my healthy thinking. And what I've actually done there is define the kind of person that I want to be around chocolate. I'm the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate. Very interestingly, you'll ask people, could you give up chocolate entirely? And almost everybody says no. If you rephrase it and say, could you become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? Most people will say yes. Whether they want to or not, it's a different story. Mm -hmm. Well, why is that? And that's because people who become permanently thin, they integrate these rules to become a part of their character. And character trumps willpower. So I'd like to give you an example if that's okay. Yes. So let's say you walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip. And she says, I'll be right back. I'm just going to get you some menus. There's no window and there's nobody up front. The owner isn't there. Nobody would see you take the $20 bill. 99% of the people that I ask whether they would take the $20 bill, say there's no way that they would. Right. Say, why? Well, so tell me why. Why wouldn't you do it? Because it, it's against my personal character. I, I yeah. just find that morally reprehensible. You're not a thief. Right. (laughs) And this woman worked hard for her money and it's hers. Mm -hmm. Does it require willpower for you not to do that? Or is it just that it's part of your character? It's not even an option. Part of my character? Automatic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, the research on willpower says that willpower is a fatigable muscle. It's not like an on and off switch. It's like gas in the tank. What burns your willpower every day is making decisions, any kind of decision, not just food decisions. People, people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems beforehand. The thing about character is that character defines what you're going to do in the face of certain temptations, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Because it's reprehensible for you to think of doing anything else. Character eliminates the need to make decisions. So character preserves your willpower. Character requires no willpower. So if you want to become permanently thin or if you want to become permanently anything else, you define the healthy behavior as a rule, not a guideline, but a rule. Because guidelines require you to make decisions. I'll tell you why in a minute. You define the healthy behavior as a rule and then you adopt it as part of your identity. You're not a thief. You would never take that $20 bill. Mm-hmm. It would be pleasurable if you did. You would not get caught. But because of who you are as a person, you just won't do it. Because of who I am as a person... I'll never eat chocolate again. I just won't. It's just I'm, I'm not the kind of person who eats chocolate. So that's how you think more permanently as a as a thin person. That's how you do that. I get it. That's pretty eye opening. Thank you so much. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Okay, let me just tell you the thing about rules versus guidelines. Yes, please do. It, it, it has to do with decision making. Also, if I were to say, let's go back to when I was only going to have chocolate on weekends. So what's two out of seven? I guess that's about. Um, 28% or something like that. Mm-hmm. If I were going to say that I was going to just be good 70% of the time with chocolate, but 30% of the time I was going to have chocolate bar if I wanted to, then I would have to make a decision every time I was in front of a chocolate bar whether this was part of a 70% or 30%. The, the percentages people usually use are 90-10. They'll say be good 90% of the time and bad 10% of the time, but it's the same thing. Your, if your philosophy is just to be bad 10% of the time and good 90% of the time, you always have to ask whenever you're in front of anything tempting, is this part of the 90% or 10%? Every time you ask, you're burning brain glucose, you're losing your willpower. And that's why people have so much trouble maintaining their food plans at night. They start out with the best of willpower during the day, but they lose it as the day goes on and they make more decisions. Rules 
say, I'll never eat chocolate again or I'll only ever have chocolate on a Sunday, make all your decisions for you. You Monday through Saturday, I don't have to make any chocolate decisions. Therefore, I'm not burning my willpower. Rules trump guidelines. Character trumps willpower. That's how it works. Have you ever found or worked with people that um, were kind of rules adverse? Yeah. <laughs> that they just, you know, the very thought of a rule kind of constricts them in a way that's maybe different from other people that don't look at rules in that way. And then how do you work with that type of person? Well, there's a whole other psychological approach has to do more with intuitive eating that says you shouldn't restrict any food, you shouldn't label any food as healthy versus unhealthy. You should learn to trust your intuition. The reason that you're binging is because you're not allowing yourself to have pasta or bagels or donuts. You need to allow it more. And I do find once in a while that there are people that just can't adopt any rules. They, they just can't. It just, they rebel too much against it. The only approach that's going to work for them is intuitive eating. And you know, God bless them. That's, that's really fine with me. If it works, if it works for you, then I want it to work for you. I'm not, I'm not out to prove that this is the only way to, to mm-hmm. fix the problem. What I can tell you, though, is that I think, I think it's a flawed premise. Even though it works for some people, I think it's a flawed premise because there are some things that are food and there are some things that are not food no matter what, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, it's legal. There are companies that put flavored cardboard into the food system. Can you tell me that it's really wrong to stand up and say, Enough is enough. I'm not going to eat flavored cardboard. Um, there are there are cancer-causing chemicals in so much of our food. Yes. Is, is, is it wrong to draw a line and say I'm not going to put that in my body? I mean, there, we don't eat dirt. We don't eat dog poop. There are rules that we have, whether we think we have them or not. I I think that we should carefully think through. Mm-hmm. What rules we want to follow. Don't let anybody tell you. Figure it out for yourself based upon the best information you can find. And then minimize those rules. You don't want to, you don't want to put a traffic light at every corner if it's not necessary. If you have safe intersections that don't put a rule there. Mm-hmm. Figure out where the danger points are. Create rules. Create definitions for yourself. And then you know, for the rest of your life, float around within those rules intuitively eating. You can certainly eat intuitively within the context of your rules. But I think that there are dangerous intersections out there. There are dangerous foods, and people mm-hmm. need to be willing to, um, to identify them and think through how they want to be with them. So that's my answer to that. Well, thank you for taking the time to share with us today. Um, sure. I really feel like I am more educated about binging and uh, about reframing my own thought process about food. So I'm very appreciative about that. I, I enjoyed your questions. I, I liked your challenges. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, once again, thanks to, I'll say it just this one time, Dr. Glenn Livingston. Uh, we're grateful for your expertise and for sharing with us today. Like I said, I, I really feel like I've been enlightened in a very meaningful way. To learn more about um, Dr. Glenn and to download his book, Never Binge Again, please visit his website, neverbingeagain.com. That's neverbingeagain.com. Com. You can also sign up for reader bonuses there to download sample food plans, binge recovery strategies, and so much more. There's help and there's hope. And I really um, think that our listeners listening to this podcast episode will definitely get that from our discussion. And thanks to all of our listeners for your support and for continuing to check out this podcast each and every week. Remember to subscribe and know when we upload a new episode. If you do, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Podcasts. You can also listen and catch up on any mess, missed episodes at the website, gethappywithj.com. So any parting words for our listeners, Glenn? 
I just want to tell people to click the big red button when you get to neverbingingin.com to take you to the reader bonuses. Thank you for that information. And, and a more so, meaningful parting message would be uh-huh. that it's not as complicated as you think it is. All you have to do to never binge again is never binge again. You don't have to do a lot of the things that you think you have to do. It's not, not as hard. I think we Everyone overthink says, and overanalyze pretty much everything, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in our culture, yeah. Yes. Oh, I do have one quick question because I, I'm kind of curious if you have any insight about this before we leave. Why does this seem that this is just such a prevalent problem in our country? Is it because we're blessed to, you know, be a society that just has more in general? So that, of course, makes us have access to more food. Why is this such an American problem? Or do we just feel like it's an American problem only and it's everywhere? Well, it is everywhere, and we've been exporting the problem all over the world. So we've been you know, introducing fast food and supersized portions and everything like that to China, and they're starting to have some of the problems that we are. Um, I, I do think it has something to do with the particular diet that's espoused and some of the, some of the history of the food pyramid and how the you know, meat and dairy industries kind of infiltrated those recommendations a long time ago. I, I think it has something to do with that. But it is a rampant problem all over the world, and I don't think we need to point fingers at one country or another. Mm-hmm. The, the solution is, well, you know, how are you going to get yourself to lean more towards whole natural foods again? And what steps are you willing to take to get there? And how are you going to define that and, and get on the way? So that's what I think. And thank you for educating us on exactly how to do that. Until next week, everyone, do something to make yourself happy. It's not selfish. It's self-care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.